Today's scripture reading is Psalm 46 on the church. It's New International Version in the Church Bible, either under your seat or in the back. It's on page 263. So it says, God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose, stream, whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done. The desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The word of the Lord. So it must have been a, an amazing sight. Picture this, Mount Carmel, the duel of the ages. On the one hand, you've got Elijah, the prophet of Yahweh, the one true God. On the other hand, you've got 450 prophets of the pagan god Baal. 450. Picture that for a minute. That's probably 10 times the number of people in this room. 450. Where did that all start? Well, let's go. If you want to follow along, we're going to be spending a little bit of time in 1 Kings starting in verse 16. It all started with Ahab. 1 Kings 16, starting in verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as, it, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah pole. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. What an epitaph. Imagine being known throughout all history as the guy who was more against God than anybody before you. Well, God rose up a prophet, Elijah. In verse, chapter 17, verse 1, we read, Now Elijah the Tishbite in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there will be neither dew nor rain until I say so. And then he left and disappeared for three years. And there was drought in the land. And it was not pleasant. And finally, after three years, God said to Elijah, now go back and, and meet with Ahab. So he did. He shows himself to Ahab. And Ahab's reaction is, you troublemaker, what are you doing here? And Elijah says, well, I'm not the troublemaker. 
You're the troublemaker because you're the one who's rebelling against God. You're the one who's worshiping false gods. Tell you what we're going to do. Take your 450 prophets of Baal and your 400 prophets of, of Asherah. Meet me on Mount Carmel. Bring all the people. So they meet on Mount Carmel. Now Mount Carmel is actually a mountain range near present-day Haifa. It's about 500 feet high, kind of a flat-topped range. There are a couple of mountain peaks in that. But I suspect they're on the, they're on the flattish portion of it. This was a, a common place for sacrifices, both for false gods and actually the God of Israel. There was an altar at one point up there to him. So they meet on Mount Carmel. And Elijah says to the people, he says, okay, here's what we're going to do. Bring us two bulls. We're going to build fires. And the prophets of Baal are going to cut up the bull and put it on the fire. And I'm going to cut up the bull and put it on my fire. But don't light it. We're going to let our God light it directly. And we'll see who the, who the real God is. He says to the people, he says, you know, you've got to stop this, this my, my version says, limping around. You've got to stop, you've got to make a decision. Who are you going to serve? You're going to serve the real God, Yahweh, or you're going to serve this Baal God? You've got to pick one. Since there's 450 of you, you guys go first. So they do. They take up the bull, they, they build a fire, put all the wood down, cut the, cut, the, uh, cut the bull up, put it on the fire, and then they start calling out to God, their God, Baal. It says from morning until noon, they're dancing around, calling out to Baal. Nothing's happening. Around noon, Elijah comes out and says, hey, where's your God? Maybe he's off thinking about something. Maybe he's relieving himself. He's been, maybe he's in the bathroom, he can't hear you. Maybe he's off on a, on a trip somewhere. Maybe, maybe you just need to call louder. Call louder. So they start calling louder and dancing around, and, and they take out their knives and their swords, and they start, they start cutting themselves, because Baal, these, these false gods, often liked human blood. Picture 450 people dancing around on the top of this mountain, bleeding. <sighs> Nothing's happening. Come, come the time for the evening sacrifice, it says. Elijah says, okay. Over here, guys. And he cuts up his bull, and he builds a fire, and he puts the bull on the fire. And he, before he does that, he actually takes the stones that are laying around, and he, and he rebuilds an altar to Yahweh, using 12 stones to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And he digs a trench around it, and he says to the people, he says, okay, uh, fill up. Fill up those four big jars of water and come over here and dump it on the fire. So they do. He says, do it, do it again. So they do. He says, one more time. Three times. That's 12 jars full of water they dump on here. And then he calls out to God. And God answers. He answers with fire from heaven. It says that it devoured the bull, it devoured the wood, it devoured the stones, 
it dissolved, it vaporized the water. Imagine all this water. Imagine the sight here. Fire from heaven, steam, huge cloud of steam, and the people are on their knees. Yahweh is the God. Yahweh is the God. And so they gathered up the 450 prophets of Baal, and they were slaughtered. And he calls Ahab, and he says, now, now it will rain. And while Ahab is having lunch, Elijah goes and climbs one of these little peaks, probably about 1,700 feet high. And he's looking out towards the sea, because this is right, right near the ocean. And slowly, ever so slowly, he sees a small cloud form on the horizon. And it gets bigger and darker, and it comes, and it rains. And the land is rescued from their drought. So Ahab gets in his chariot, and he, he zooms off to, to tell Jezebel, back to the castle to tell Jezebel what's going on. And, Ahab, and, and Elijah, in, in a supernatural strength, runs ahead of him and beats him there. And Ahab tells Jezebel, and Jezebel's reaction is, I am going to do to you what you just did to my prophets. And what does Elijah do? Now, no, picture this for a moment. This is a guy who just faced down 450 prophets, bleeding prophets. Jezebel threatens his life, and he runs for his life. He flees to the wilderness. He's exhausted. He's depressed. What on earth happened? What happened was, I believe, what's, what's known in some circles as adrenaline letdown. We live in a stressful world, and God has made these amazing bodies. And when we come up against a situation which is going to require our extreme attention, our bodies go into fight-or-flight mode. Either we're going to run or we're going to stand and face it. What happens is, Adrenaline and cortisol are released into our bloodstream. These are chemicals which raise our blood pressure, raise our heart rate, cause the liver to produce sugar so we have lots of energy, quick energy, our, our breathing goes up. We are ready. And in an extreme situation, like you're walking in the woods and there's a bear behind you, you, you kind of need that. But to live at, a, at sort of a level where it's always, you're always kind of stressed out is, is extremely damaging. The real culprit is cortisol. Let me just read to you a little bit some of the things that cortisol does to the body when it's there long term. It causes changes in the brain. You have trouble sleeping, anxiety, memory problems. They've actually found that the, the, the uh, amyloid plaque that is associated with Alzheimer's seems to grow faster in the presence of of cortisol. It weakens your immune system. You get digestive troubles, you upset stomach, heartburn, intestinal issues. You're at increased risk for heart attack, increased cholesterol and triglycerides. It can trigger asthma. It lowers your bone density. You get headaches, increased fat deposition, depression. This is, this is poisonous stuff when it's there long term. And we live in a stressful world. Well, haven't we just come through a stressful year? I mean, seriously? <laughs> Worldwide pandemic, stressful election, 
And what's up with murder hornets? Fortunately, they're on the West Coast. We don't have to deal with them yet. There's just, there's so much stress. What do we do about this? Well, let's go back to 1 Kings for a minute and see what happens to Elijah. When Elijah, this will be in 19, chapter 19, starting at verse 4. When Elijah went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die. He's, a, he's depressed. He's a depressed guy. He's like, God, I've had it. Just kill me now. It is enough now, Lord. Take away my life. I'm no better than my father's. And he lay down, and he slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there at his head was a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank, and he laid down again. And the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in strength forty days and forty nights to Mount Sinai. It says Horeb, but it's another name for Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. And there we have this very famous story of him encountering God in the cave. And God comes in in a, in a, in a strong wind, the wind's so strong that it's knocking the stones around, and it says God was not in the wind. And then there was an earthquake, but God was not in the earthquake. And then there was fire, but God was not in the fire. And then it was just the little voice, the little voice of God, comforting and reassuring Elijah. This, I think, what we're seeing here is God's plan for stress. When we encounter stressful situations, we need to go and get alone. If you're into spiritual disciplines, this is known as solitude. And they often, they often combine solitude and silence because it's, it's, when you go out alone, there's often nobody to talk. There's nothing going on. It's, it's very easy to be silent. But this is, this is not something we're used to. Gene Fleming, in Finding Focus in a Whirlwind World, says this. We live in a noisy, busy world. Silence and solitude are not 20th century words. They fit the era of Victorian lace, high button shoes, kerosene lamps, better than our age of television, video arcades, and joggers wired with earphones. We have become a people with an aversion to quiet and an uneasiness with being alone. One of the reasons we talk about solitude and silence together is summed up by Dallas Willard in The Spirit of the Disciplines. He says, silence gives depth to solitude, and solitude creates a, creates a space for silence. I want to do a little experiment here. I want everybody to close their eyes and raise their hand. And I'm going to time it. I'm going to time it. We're going to, we're going to do a minute of silence. When you think a minute has gone by, I want you to drop your hand. Ready? Starting now.
All right, you can lower your hands. That's pretty good, actually. Most of you, most of you lasted a minute, although the hands started going down at about 25 seconds. We're not used to silence in our culture. We're not used to silence. And I admit, I, I'm the first to turn on the TV just so that it's background noise. Solitude is the voluntary and temporary withdrawal to privacy for spiritual purposes. And silence is a voluntary and temporary abstention from speaking for spiritual reasons. Solitude is not being alone, but it's about seeking God. And silence is not about not speaking, it's about listening. And that's what we see Elijah doing in the wilderness. He's alone in the wilderness, he's sleeping, he's refreshing, and he's ultimately listening to what God has to say. I think what we see here in the story of Elijah is, is a God-given rhythm of stress and solitude, stress and solitude. We need to come away from our lives every once in a while. What did it do for him? Well, number one, it gave him rest. He must have been exhausted. Imagine, imagine you know, I get a little bit worked up just before I come to preach. Not, not much. It doesn't bother me that much. But imagine what it, what it took for him to get worked up for this. 450, maybe 850. It doesn't really talk about the prophets of Asherah, all the, uh, except at the very beginning of that story. But let's say it was 450. That's a lot of people. My graduating high school class was only 400, right? 450 is a lot of people. He, he rested. He slept, which is a perfectly appropriate thing to do. Second thing it did for him is, is, is af, after he had rested and started to decompress, it allowed him to then hear God's still small voice. God can't often break through when we're in the middle of busy, noisy stuff. Sometimes we need to get away and we need to quiet our hearts so that we can hear him. And then when we do hear him, number three, we can gain God's perspective. And God did. He gave him his perspective. He says, you know what? I am still in charge. It's okay. I want to look for a minute at our example and our teacher, Jesus, because, because he practiced this, this idea of the stress and solitude, stress and solitude, busyness and rest. We'll start in Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, verse 12. And in these days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve. So here, in anticipation of a big event, of a big decision, he gets away. By himself, quiet place, so he can hear. After he fed the 5,000, which, which probably was a, a somewhat spiritually draining event for him, it says this. 
Matthew 14. He made the disciples get into a boat and go before him to the other side of the lake. And while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Jesus needed the time to decompress from this. This was his regular practice, actually, we see. If you, if you look, you can see it in a number of places. For example, in Mark 1.35, he says, Rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. If Jesus, who was God in human form, felt it necessary to take these periods of time to rest and be still, then I think we should take his example. And then when the twelve, he had sent out the twelve preaching the kingdom, when the twelve returned, it says, in Mark 6, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. They were all excited. And he said to them, come, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and let, let's rest a while. So he's teaching them now, okay, you've, you've just been on this big stressful missionary journey. Let's all just get away and decompress. And we see it before he went to the cross. He prepared for that by being alone in the garden. So we see Jesus being our example. That this is, this is something we need to kind of think about, this, this stress and rest, stress and solitude. And it'll give us rest. And maybe we'll hear God better. And maybe we'll gain his perspective better. So this requires a little bit of, little bit of introspection on our part, I think. We need to stop and think, what are the things that stress us out? What are, what are your stressors? Maybe it's ministry-oriented. Maybe it's work-oriented. Who knows? But stop and think about what are those things that stress me out? And then, then stop and think, what, how am I balancing that? Am I balancing that? Or am I just coming home and, and diving into work projects which are in themselves stressful? You've you, you got kind of a timetable in your head. You've got to get this done. How are you balancing them? I want to give you a few suggestions. Hopefully none of you forsake vacations. Because vacations are great times to sort of get away. And when you go on vacation, don't check your email. I know this is going to sound really like I'm a Luddite or something. Don't check your email. It's okay to keep your cell phone and keep it on because, you know, somebody might need to get a hold of you in an emergency, but maybe check it once or twice a day. We used to have a rule when we went camping that um, no electronics were allowed on our site. <laughs> Some of the teenagers really bristled at that. It was like, what do you mean I can't have my cell phone? I'm texting somebody. I'm texting my friends. I'm being sociable. It's like, yeah, but there's people right here. And you know what? You could, you could do it for a few days. That sort of softened a little when, when we started having parents who were, who were in nursing homes having dementia. And we we reala realized that we really needed to be accessible, just in case. But we balanced it. Take a vacation. Consider a personal retreat. There's actually, 
you could just go off into the woods for a day. If, you're, if you really kind of like to rough it, you could go, go do a little camping by yourself. There are lots of retreat houses around. Look it up on the internet, where you can, you can go and spend a day or a night. When I was in seminary, I, I did a, uh, we had a spiritual formation class where I um, was doing a, a unit on uh, contemplative prayer. And so I took a day off and I went to um, Mary House. It was a Catholic retreat house just outside of Worcester and Spencer. And I had my ta- as my task, I was going to read a book, a short book on, on contemplative prayer, and I was going to read Lamentations. That's one big long prayer. And I found I slept a lot. It turns out I had the, the house to myself. There was nobody else there that day. So I had the house to myself. And as I was, as I was sitting, it's interesting how God gets our attention. As I was sitting in their, in their three-season porch, just sort of thinking, there was a cardinal who kept coming up to the window and tapping on the window, tap, 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 and then he'd fly away. A few minutes later, he'd be back, tap, 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 and he'd fly away. And after a few minutes, I'm thinking, what is with this bird? Doesn't he realize there's a window here? What on earth is he doing? Tap, tap, tap. This went on for like half an hour, 45 minutes. And finally, I got God's perspective, and he says, you know, you're not unlike that bird. You just keep pecking at something that really isn't even there. It doesn't even matter. You need to stop. You need to slow down. You need to just kind of let me be God. Be still and know that I'm God. Consider a personal retreat. Richard Foster, who wrote Celebration of Discipline, recommends actually that everybody take a a three to four hour solitude retreat four times a year to just kind of think about what you're doing, where you're going, get perspective on things. Think about it. Work in more daily kinds of things. In the evangelical church, we call it quiet time, right? And if you were more from an Anglican or an Episcopal tradition, you might call it the daily office. It's a time to just sit quietly, do a little reading in the Bible, do a little listening to God, do a little praying. I'd recommend that you set aside a special place in your house. For me, it's a chair. There's a chair in the living room that I don't usually sit in most of the time, but it's kind of my morning chair. And when I sit in that chair, I know that now it's time to just kind of quiet myself before the Lord. And fortunately, I'm up early, so I get the house to myself. Make it part of a routine. Because, because the, the, the reality is that our routine is full of routine stress, whether it's going to work or driving or going to school or whatever it is. Look for little bits of solitude and silence. When you're waiting for something, fight the urge to take out your phone and play a little game. When you're driving in the car, turn the radio off. I found that, that my, my evenings went better when I was working, if I, on the way home, if I didn't listen to the news. Because, boy, the news can be stressful. Just turn it off and drive home in silence. This is going to sound a little weird, but I, I, find, I find solitude in mowing the lawn. I've got headphones on, so I can't hear much. And it's, it's a mindless activity. You're just pushing the mower back and forth. I could almost be asleep while I'm doing it. You know, some of my best thoughts, some of my, I'm, 
I'm working on my sermon. I tell my wife, I'm, I'm mowing the lawn, but I'm actually working on my sermon, believe it or not. Because my mind is free. As I'm using my body, my mind is free to just kind of let God speak into it. There's nothing else going on. There's nobody to talk to. Turn off the television for a day. There's a, there's a, there's a shocker. Try that one. Go for hikes. If, if, if you're so inclined, go fishing. You know what? Fishing, fishing really, anybody here who fishes, anybody who fishes, anybody, you got any fishermen? You'll know what I'm talking about. Fishing isn't really about catching fish. It's about getting out and being in a peaceful place. Whether you're sitting in a boat, whether you're standing on the side of a lake or a stream. It's a great way to do it. Think about those things that stress you. Think about how you're balancing that. Because if you're not balancing it, sooner or later, you're going to crash, like Elijah did. Our bodies, as amazing as they are, cannot last forever. They cannot keep going full bore with cortisol and adrenaline in them forever. They need to stop every once in a while. And I think we see that in the example of Elijah, and we see it in the example of how Jesus lived his life. I'm just going to close with, the, with Psalm 46 one more time. Because this is the perspective. This is God's perspective. God is our refuge and our strength. A very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear Though the earth give way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. Yahweh of the armies is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of Yahweh. Though he has brought desolations on the earth, he makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow He shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Yahweh of the heavenly armies is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Would you pray with me, please? Gracious Heavenly Father, you are. And we need now and then to stop long enough to realize and to hear you. Speak into each one of our lives this week and show us if we need more balance, if we need to take some times when we are still before you and refresh us. And it's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.